As you know, we're beginning a new series of studies in the book of Acts, and today we are launching those studies by beginning at chapter 11. And I want to begin with an illustration about uh, what's the best way to describe him, a sportsman, I guess, whom you will instantly recognize. And sadly, he passed away back in March. And that night, his death was covered on CBS News. It was covered in the New York Times. It was covered in most of the daily newspapers, as well as the national and international news agencies. He was a medical doctor, an academic, but it was his sporting prowess that was featured. Because as a young medical student, on May the 6th, 1954, for the first time in recorded history, he ran a sub four-minute mile. Roger Bannister broke that record when the sports gurus, psychologists, coaches of the day said it was, physically speaking, impossible. The heart, the lungs, the legs, physiologically could not run a sub-four-minute mile. And not only was he uh, celebrated for most of his life, it was, as one sports commentator said, one of the defining sporting moments of the 20th century. And I think that's accurate. But 40-something days later, an Australian, John Landry, also ran a sub-four-minute miles. And he beat Bannister's new record by two seconds. Now, in the world of elite athletes, two seconds is a long time. But in the next five years, till 1960, 59, 60, 20 athletes beat the four-minute mile again and again and again and again. And the question is this, why? What was it about Bannister breaking it the first time? It almost seemed that he'd given others permission to do the same. And now sports psychologists, when they look back, are suggesting this. That perhaps the, the, what shall we say, the standard of excellence was set too low. Others are saying expectations were set too low. And as we come to this new series in the book of Acts, I wonder if on a personal basis and as a congregation, spiritually speaking, we are tempted to set our sights too low. And as we come to Acts chapter 11, I sometimes wonder if that's what was happening in this chapter. If you envisage in your mind the book of Genesis, at the beginning of the Old Testament starts way back there and works its way up to Malachi, which finishes here, that's the Old Testament. Then you have the Gospels, where God himself becomes incarnate in Christ. And through his teaching and miracles, individuals are impacted, transformed, families 
communities begin to feel the overwhelming impact, joy, and thrill of the love and grace of God. Now, up to that point, God was considered distant, disinterested, for some, not all, but for some. And then suddenly, Christ arrived, talking of his Father, whom we could know and know deeply and fully. And Acts begins with Pentecost Sunday. And for the want of a better phrase, let me use another sports phrase, Pentecost was a game changer. And it was a game changer in every sense, because in the Old Testament days, the Holy Spirit would put his hand upon an individual, lead, guide, direct that individual, influence them. Other times, he would anoint an individual for a season or for a particular purpose, like Saul in the Old Testament was anointed by the Holy Spirit to be the first king of Israel. But when you move beyond the Gospels and you come to the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is no longer simply influencing, no longer simply leading and guiding and directing. He certainly does that through the Gospels and Acts on, but for the first time in redemptive history, God Himself in and through His Holy Spirit does something very different unprecedented. He comes and dwells within the heart and soul of an individual who responds to his gospel. Unprecedented. Never happened before. And that was the beginning of the book of Acts. And on Pentecost Sunday, word started spreading all over Jerusalem and the villages and towns nearby in southern Galilee. And lives were utterly transformed and changed in an unprecedented manner. And so with all that being said, as we come to chapter 11, what do we discover? Chapter 11, verse 19 says, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Now notice the point. Those who had been scattered by the persecution. Now let me give you a couple of minutes to pause because I've thrown a lot at you and give you a little more of the contextual backdrop to the book of Acts, because this is important to know. And again, we won't do this every Sunday, but it's helpful when we're starting a new series of studies. The book of Acts, New Testament scholars tell us that it was written by Luke, the same author as Luke's gospel. The other thing we need to know is this, that in chapters 1 to 7, and I'll do this fairly quickly, focuses on the church being established in Jerusalem. Then the persecution breaks out, and that was over, what can we say, probably a two-year period, the first seven chapters. Second focus is chapters 8 through 12, and that was over a 12-year period, and that's just what we're about to look at, the church spreading into Judea and up into Samaria. And then finally, chapters 13 to 28, we'll touch some of them over the next couple of months as we get further and further into Acts, the church expands to the rest of the known world. In chapters 1 through 12, the main focus is on Peter, the apostle. And then in chapters 13 through 28, the main character is Paul, and we're going to see Paul being introduced in subsequent Sundays. But the thing I need you to remember most of all is this, 
that the focus of the book of Acts is not simply on Peter and Paul. The main character in the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. Because the temptation is to look at Peter, Paul, Barnabas, Luke, and all sorts of other characters and forget that Acts could rightly be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Passage tells us that those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Antioch was one of the fastest growing towns of its day. Antioch had a population of approximately 500,000 people, half a million people. And in antiquity, that was a lot of people. But slightly to the west was a major seaport close to Antioch, about 15 miles. And therefore, it was a cosmopolitan city. A city not only, as we said minutes ago, of half a million people. The port allowed for import, export. And there were people living in Antioch from Persia and India and China. And what was going on was this that as a direct result of the persecution in Jerusalem, the Jewish folks in Jerusalem were heading north, fleeing a persecution. And please hear me when I say this. This is not simply discrimination. You would be arrested, serve time in prison, or even put to death for following Christ. That's how serious it was. And so parents were picking up their children, their grandchildren, and fleeing north for their lives. These people were terrified. What was God doing? What kind of faith is this if in giving your heart and soul and mind to Christ and seeking to follow him, your life is at risk? What kind of faith is this? And as they're traveling north, they're asking, where will we stay? Where will I get a livelihood? How, what are we going to do about the children? All of our home and our livelihood has been left behind. All that was known, all that was comfortable, our family memories, now all gone. We're heading north to Antioch. They were in a tough situation, to say the least. But the passage tells us this. Most of them settled down in Antioch, and as they were beginning to reestablish their lives, the people around them were asking them, why did they flee? Why have they come there? What is going on? And slowly but surely, as they got to know those families, those families would talk about Christ. They would talk about the difference he makes on their lives. They would talk about answered prayer and his leading and guiding and directing. They would talk about what it means to have sin forgiven and have intimacy with God through the work of the Holy Spirit. All that would come out. But notice what else the passage says, verse 20, and this is a significant development in Acts. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And what is happening there is this. For the first time, the gospel is beginning to break out from its Jewish and Old Testament background. The gospel was the fulfillment of all that had been, and it was now moving on an international basis for the first time. 
And notice what else happens, verse 21. This is one of my favorite passages in all of the book of Acts, and it reads like this. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed. Now, what is going on here? Well, God is at work in a supernatural manner. He's impacting individuals and families and communities, and the whole city of Antioch was beginning to feel it. And they're asking themselves, what on earth is going on? These people have arrived from Jerusalem. They've brought this strange faith with them, and it's impacting and changing our city. What is happening? Now, whenever you come across a similar phrase in Scripture that the hand of God was at work or the Lord's hand was with them, it usually means this, that God was at work in a powerful, persuasive, and compelling manner. From the beginning of all time, his redemptive purposes and plans were working their way out right up through the gospel, through the Old Testament, through the prophets. We're now coming to the book of Acts, and people are beginning to understand this, that the gospel was not simply for people with a Jewish background. The salvation of humanity is simply that, the salvation for humanity. And God was working in a powerful, unprecedented, compelling, persuasive manner. Back in the mid-1980s, the generation who was here then, and that includes many of you, and many of you remember it like yesterday, signed up prayed, committed, and sacrificially gave financially to build this sanctuary. But you did it so well, you didn't simply stop at a sanctuary. You went on to build offices, and a chapel, and a gym, and Sunday school rooms, and offices, and floors that go up. As a church, we own three city blocks. And we're now at the stage of looking back and giving thanks to God for the vision that took place in the 80s and 90s. But today, for this generation, the time has come where we are in desperate need of more facilities. Desperate need for more Sunday school classrooms. Desperate need for a new gym. Our Ignite worship service has been happening in the basement for the last 12 years, and we are out of room. 14 months ago, we were putting out 450 chairs, and then it crept up to 500, and then it crept up to 550, and it crept up to 600. There were not many spare chairs this morning when I was taking the service down there. Not many. And next Sunday, it will get even worse because all of the schools will be back. We have before us an unprecedented opportunity 
to transform this corner of Richardson and Washington in order that we can provide the facilities to be a 21st century church. We are living in the fastest growing town in the southeast. We are living in one of the most sought-after towns in the nation. People are moving to Greenville in record numbers. When I first arrived here 10 years ago, someone said to me, Charlotte was, this is 2007, they said, Charlotte today is what Atlanta was 15 years ago. And Greenville is today what Charlotte was 15 or 25 years ago. And we're getting larger and larger as every week goes by. We cannot keep up with the growth in Greenville. And the question is this, what is God calling us to do and to be? We have before us an unprecedented opportunity to grow a vital, thriving church. Why was the hand of the Lord with the church in Antioch? What was going on that he blessed, equipped, strengthened, and encouraged them? They were living in one of the fastest growing cities of their day. They couldn't keep up with the growth. And I cannot help but wonder if we as a congregation and as individuals are maybe setting our sights too low. And we need to say, Father, show us all that you have in store for us. Help us, lead us, guide us, direct us. May your hand be upon us for this generation. Because folks, please hear this. Notice what the passage says. The Lord's hand was with them. A great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And notice what comes next. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, isn't that a spectacular phrase? the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Now, notice what happens next, verse 25. Then Barnabas goes to Tarsus for help because he brings Saul with him. And you can imagine Barnabas saying to Saul, God is at work in an unprecedented fashion. We desperately need your help. And he's writing back to the folks in Jerusalem. Remember, those were the people who sent him. And he's sending them a report. And he's saying to them, remember what is happening here. Do you realize that the gospel is impacting people from Persia and India and China and those with a Hellenistic background as well? This is unprecedented. We need your prayers. We need your help. Folks, we are a thriving congregation. God is at work in spectacular ways in our midst. And if you're around here for any length of time, it is almost tangible, almost tangible. I have the spectacular opportunity of meeting both with individuals and groups and seeing the grace of God at work. And there is a fresh level of commitment. There is a new level of prayer. God is preparing us to take us into a new season of life and ministry right here. 
and the grace of God was at work among them. So here's a couple of questions as I try and wrap things up this morning. We have an unprecedented opportunity. Our city is growing. As a church, we are growing. We are about to embark on a comprehensive, extensive capital campaign. And our greatest single need is prayer. You may be tempted to say, Richard, I can sign up and help in leadership, and we welcome that. We absolutely want that. Richard, can I be on a committee to help lead in this area or that area? Absolutely. But our single biggest need is prayer. Our greatest need as a church in these days as we respond to all that God is calling us to is that the Lord's hand would be upon us. Because if the hand of God is upon us, the leadership will come. If the hand of God is upon us, the finance will come. If the hand of God is upon us, our focus will be where it needs to be. Please hear me when I plead for you and tell you our greatest single need is that the hand of God will be upon us as we move into this next phase of life and ministry. Please be praying for us. Secondly, we discover this, that further on in the passage at verse 29, it tells us this, excuse me, verse 26. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. And the question is, why? Why not call Christians in Jerusalem? Why not called Christians in Capernaum, where Jesus spent most of his adult life? Why were they called Christians at Antioch? And I suspect for this reason, in the midst of a population of half a million people, here was a people for whom righteousness, moral standards, and spiritual standards mattered. Here was a people who were going to say, when it comes to human sexuality, we will stand on Christian principles, we will stand with Christ. When it comes to the sanctity of life, we will stand with Christian principles. When it comes to moral issues, we believe that there are moral issues that make a difference in a person's life. We believe that character and integrity and honesty and community and investing in our children and bringing them up in a Christian fashion, we believe these things matter. That's why they were called followers of Christ, despite the persecution. They were willing to stand and make a difference. And the call to us this morning is this. If we believe that the gospel is important, and if we believe that Greenville needs a focus and transformation of its spiritual heart 
This is where you need to be as we pray and build and develop and seek to influence and change. And when we are willing to be there, then you will see evidence of the grace of God at work. To be a thriving, growing church in a downtown 21st context where people want to belong, have a spiritual appetite, long to know Christ, and live with Him day by day. We have that opportunity. And please hear me. In the history of our congregation and the history of this city, This is not the time to surrender to the insipid stagnation of the status quo. This is not the time for the restrictions of gradualism, caution, and postponement. This is not the time for apathy or indifference, and it certainly is not the time for the moribund impotence of cultural appeasement. The greatest thing our neighbors, friends, and this city could call us is Christians. And I cannot help but wonder if what we do in the next 8 to 12 months, in 25 years, our children and our grandchildren will look back and shake their heads in all and proclaim the Lord's hand was with them because we absolutely refused to set our sights too low or our spiritual expectations too low. Amen.